The demand society places on women, the choices they make about their lives, their relationships, and their appearance can be overwhelming. Today's guest exposes those expectations to the bright light of day and forces all of us to consider our own roles in them. She's Lindsay Krauss this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by Lindsay Krauss, a multi-talented journalist and film producer. She's currently a senior editor for the New York Times. Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, you are a uh, native of our home state of Rhode Island. Uh, and we're curious a little bit about your journey uh, to the New York Times and, 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 and what got you where you are today. So tell us a little bit. I know that you were a, a very competitive athlete uh, earlier in your life. What got you into running? Um, well, I played soccer. I'm from South Kingstown, Rhode Island, and I played soccer growing up. Um, and at some point I realized I wanted, um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to blame a coach for not playing me. Um, you know, like if I scored a goal or something and I realized with running, I could only ever blame myself. Um, you know, if I didn't kind of succeed the way I wanted to. And I just, after a while, I found that addictive, you know, just the, sort of this autonomy, this independence, and also this freedom to the sport. Um, and so I just got really into track and field and then cross country um, and finally earned myself uh, a, a spot at Harvard and um, competed there and have just been really into marathons ever since. Well, I know in uh, 2000, and uh, you graduated from Harvard in 2006, but I know that you, part of your career, you spent some time working on documentary film and one that's near and dear to us, 4.1 Miles, uh, Daphne Matsuraki's uh, Oscar nominated documentary. Uh, how did you get into that uh, part of your career? Um, well, I finally earned my way into the Times and I started as an assistant and um, I got to know the, the head of this new documentary series called OpDocs really well. It was this guy, Jason Spingarnkoff, and he was just kind of starting it almost like a startup within the Times. We were experimenting with new mediums and uh, then Kathleen Lingo, who became the executive producer, I became a producer under her, almost her deputy. and. Um, Daphne's supervisor um, at her graduate school had sent us a cut of the film that she was making. She's from Greece, uh, and so it was her senior thesis. And I saw it, and I just I immediately saw the footage itself and the idea that there was like this hero that every um, every viewer could kind of put themselves in his shoes and wonder if I had the opportunity to save a person. Um, you know, obviously we're all watching the refugee crisis at that time unfold in our screens. And he was actually charged with the choice of, if I could save these people drowning right now, um, what would I do? And um, we watched him actually spend day after day, um, the, the film was just one day with him, but watched him actually make that choice and just kind of see the, the emotional toll and also the physical toll that um, what he was doing was taking. So you, you mentioned OpDocs, and I'm, I'm gathering you were there sort of at the birth of OpDocs. Uh, do I have that right? You were there at the, at the start? Yep, I was there at the start, and we just had our 10-year um, our anniversary this month. So Con really excited. Congra yeah, congratulations. So for people who may not know what 
New York Times op docs are, and they're great, by the way. Maybe just give an overview of what they are and, and how they're, an, they're a new form of storytelling, really, and certainly of opinion storytelling. Absolutely. So OpDocs was started with a mission to expand the text report of, um, of New York Times op-ed and opinion, um, what are now guest essays. Uh, it was trying to expand that sort of that point of view, that storytelling opportunity to independent filmmakers and to allow, to allow them to tell the most important stories of the day through film. And so uh, we have an open submission process, so anyone, whether you're a student filmmaker or an Oscar winner, can submit a short film to us, and then you get a premiere on the New York homepage and the New York Times homepage, and um, you know you, we will support you in festivals um, with awards, etc. Um, and at this point, I think we've published more than 300 short films um, by almost 300 filmmakers uh, from all over the world and from all different ages and backgrounds. Wow, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. And we're going to get into a couple more of those later on. But what decided or what, what really convinced me, I was familiar with your work, but what convinced me that we really had to have you on was a recent piece you did for Teen Girls Instagram is a cesspool. Uh, and it, it, it really struck a chord with me. And it certainly is an issue that is very relevant today. Talk about that, the issue and, and the piece itself. Sure. Um, well, so that that story was coming out of when um, Frances Haugen, the former product manager at Facebook, she was a whistleblower at Facebook and um, she told us the Senate that um, basically that Facebook and Instagram were putting astronomical products before people. Um, and of course, that led to a massive outcry among lawmakers and the general public. And so the argument that I was making in that piece is that yes, Instagram is a cesspool for teen girls, but really they're just carrying on a, a long-standing legacy um, or an American tradition, so to speak, of um, basically putting American girls through a ritual of making them learn to hate their bodies. Because once you do that, you once you make girls feel pain, you make them vulnerable and vulnerable people, vulnerable people will spend money. And so there's a tremendous industry here um, at stake where people are just making a lot of money off of these teen girls and their um, drive to fix themselves. In that column, you, you, you reflected on your own sort of adolescence and it wasn't, this is before social media, before Instagram, uh, it was uh, magazines right it was it was print magazines that you would get and subscribe to that would basically uh do the same thing that instagram is doing in terms of the way young women view their own physical appearance is that is that accurate absolutely i mean it's really scary how these messages can stick with you i still remember the dieting advice around how what is it celery or iceberg or iceberg lettuce is negative calories you can i can still look at a plate and just kind of know how many calories are on there um i think especially as a distance runner there's always been that pressure to look and to perform a certain way and your body is a part of that and you just don't know how much of this is messaging and how much of this is real and i think the other the other challenge is when you're a teen girl you soon learn that this is not just in your mind, it's real. People will treat you differently based on how you look and your body is a massive part of that. Part of how you're awarded is whether people like to look at you. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, that's what distance running in particular in sports has ironically also been a wonderful solution to that because it, it teaches you that your body is more than some 
something for other people just to look at. Um, but at the same time, all of these things are constantly in tension with each other. And you know, I haven't been a teen girl for probably two decades now, but you still remember, or I still remember just how real these pressures are and they don't go away. Well, Lindsay, there, there seemed to me too, to be a, a through line through some of your work, which is about society's expectations of how women present themselves, how they look, whether you're a mother or an athlete, you earlier in your career, uh, took on uh, some of the big sports apparel companies, uh, and in particular, the, the expectations that they were placing on their elite athletes. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Sure. Um, well, in 2019, I guess this project started in 2018. I, well, I started to move into another role at the times where I was producing videos in our opinion video section, which is different from OpDocs in that we report and produce the videos ourselves And um, through my decade at the times, I'd built up a bit of a body of work um, around women in sports, particularly through the lens of distance running, where women really are ascendant and in many ways kind of a petri dish for a lot of the challenges that are unfolding with gender in America. And of course, as we know, especially during the Trump administration, there were mass and, and to this day, there were massive um, uh, questions and discussions around um, maternity leave and maternity benefits and the extent to which America, you know, applauds mothers and almost fetishizes motherhood versus the extent to which we're willing to actually support that. And I'd done a bit of reporting a few years ago, I think it was in 2014, where I myself, you know, as a distance runner and watching the people that I knew around me, including my friends have babies and, you know, then come back stronger as athletes. I saw that this was also happening at the pro level, for example, with Kara Goucher, the Olympian who ran for Nike. Um, and so I did a lot of reporting then where I just kind of said like, look, this is possible. Like motherhood does not need to be an impediment to your athletic success. In some ways, um, it can be an accessory. Women can do it all. And of course, that was a very kind of starry-eyed and almost Pollyanna-ish uh, vision. And it was the narrative that I wanted to believe. And at that time, some of the athletes that I interviewed had told me, you know, yes, physically we can do this. Like, yes, we can be these incredible athletes, but what we're, what's not being reported is that we actually get financially penalized in our contracts when, um, when we do have babies because we're not competing, we're physically not able to, and of course we need to recover. Um, they didn't want me to report that at the time. I actually did put a line in there, but it was without attribution and it really went without notice. Um, but then when I had this new colleague in opinion, he was like, why don't you pursue that a little bit longer or a little bit more in depth, it's a new era. And so, I reached out to Alicia Montano, who had been um, talking about this issue on Instagram. Um, I reached out to Kara Goucher, completely off on background, um, and finally reached out to Allison Felix, who happened to be navigating that issue right as um, right when I reached out to her. I originally reached out because she had just had a baby, and I thought if Allison Felix can't get what she wants from a maternity leave perspective. Um, Nope, who can? Um, I thought that she was going to kill my story. In fact, she was also dealing with the same issue. Um, and so altogether, using Alicia Montano as sort of the voice of the project, we made a video that really called Nike out nuts. Not, I mean, of course, yes, for publicly applauding these athletes and penalizing them privately, but also really talking, really taking them to task for the advertising rhetoric um, that they were using around this. Um, when I saw the ad that came out around the Oscars about Dream Even Crazier narrated by Serena Williams, I was like, oh, they must have 
certainly included some sort of maternity protection in their contracts at this point. Um, of course, there was no way to actually know because all these contracts are protected by really powerful NDAs and there's a lot of fear um, surrounding Nike's sports marketing department, particularly on the part of athletes. And uh, at the end of the day, with through Allison, we were able to confirm that, yes, there was a massive gap between the advertising and the truth. And um, when we released that in May, there was a massive outcry among both the public and even a congressional inquiry. And finally, by August, Nike did announce a new maternity policy for all sponsored athletes, which guaranteed pay and bonuses for 18 months around pregnancy. And then, you know, as we as we um, did that reporting, every athlete said, you know, if Nike makes a change, other companies will make this change too. And so many other companies did that as well. So that's another great example of how great journalism can actually produce results and, and bring change, which I think is at the heart of what a lot of journalists are, are, are about in terms of their writing. I wanted to go to an opinion piece that you had published earlier in uh, 2021. So you want to save women's sports. It begins with a subhead. More than 20 states are considering bills to ban transgender girls, kids from girls' sports. If only people really cared about female athletes. And let me just read a, a passage, and I, I want you to, to elaborate on this as you did in the piece. All this new passion has made me wonder, what if all these people claiming to be fighting for the future of women's sports would really fight for the future of women's sports? What if they suddenly said, quote, we demand women's sports get equal resources, equal media coverage, and equal pay? What if these new activists embrace women's sports and invested in female athletes instead of using us as their excuse for transphobia? A lot to unpack there. Maybe you can unpack some of it for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's been tremendously frustrating as someone who has at this point spent close to a decade covering women's sports. And of course, all the excellent things that these female athletes do um, and are able to achieve with their bodies. I mean, sports at, at its core for women and for men is a tremendously empowering uh, pursuit to engage in. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes I sometimes I worry that women's sports actually can serve as an opportunity for our culture to reinforce some of the more negative ways that we view women and girls. Um, our, our culture loves girls, it loves to empower girls, but as soon as they grow up and money is involved in particular, money and resources, they find that just as in the workplace, a lot of that, a lot of the power and um, in, in particular resources and opportunities go to men. Um, and that's what's not being talked about in this debate around women and girls sports. Um, it's all about cheering and empowerment, but to me that really rings hollow. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutus. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter too, at G. Wayne Miller. 
This week, we're talking to Lindsay Krauss, a talented journalist and documentary film producer. Lindsay is currently a senior editor at the New York Times. And you can find Lindsay on Twitter at Lindsay Krauss. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-C-R-O-U-S-E. What about the inequity in pay? I mean, if you look at professional male basketball players, I don't know off the top of my head, but it, they get millions and millions of dollars a year, at least the top stars. And if you look at women uh, playing professional basketball, it's nowhere near. I mean, it's not even close. What is behind that? That's exactly right. And I think, I mean, you can, it is so easy or in fact complicated to parse why all these inequalities exist. Um, broadcast rights, um, audience, uh, all of just so many reasons why men, why men's sports do have a bigger audience um, and do enjoy better broadcast opportunities, et cetera. And that's where a lot of the money is. Um, the Olympics obviously being an exception, but that's where athletes are, are not paid, they're amateurs. Um, when the professional arena is involved, that's when women start to um, start to get shortchanged in so many ways. And um, I think that's what really bothers me is that when any, whenever sort of gender differences, particularly in sports, um, get do get kind of dissected, there's always a reason why women are paid less. Um, and I think we need to start saying, no, how do we start by creating equality and then work backwards from there, as opposed to saying, well, this is why, and this is why, and this is why, because that's what always winds up happening. I mean, if you look at the Women's World Cup, sorry, if you look at the US Women's National Team, they're the obvious exception where women's soccer is just so much more popular in America than men's, and yet the pay gap still exists. And I think if we could start with them and figure out why is this problem persisting for them, um, or even with um, even with female track and track and field and distance runners, um, you know, they, they do receive parity in some ways, but in many, in many ways they should be making more. They're more popular. They have bigger audiences on social media, et cetera. And that's still not happening. And I, that's, that's what we should be asking about. You know, Lindsay, you wrote a very powerful uh, column earlier this fall. Cancel culture isn't the problem. Okay. Culture is, uh, and it was a response to the scandal engulfing John Gruden, the former head coach of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. What is okay culture? Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the kind of culture that exists everywhere where if you have something negative that you want to say, something deeply disparaging, I'm not talking about cancel culture where certain views are considered, um, you know, out of bounds. This is when you want to use a slur or say something racist or something xenophobic or homophobic or, you know, even fat shaming, um, where you know that something is deeply inappropriate and basically mean, basically something that makes you look like a jerk. Um, and you say it anyway, because you know that you're a powerful, a successful person, and you just feel like it. And in that case, you're right, you can do that. Um, it's okay. And that's what I'm talking about here. In this case, he was using massive, wildly inappropriate language to, descri to um, describe people that he'd worked with. He knew it was wrong, and he just did it because he could. And I think that's that's something that our culture really needs to change, particularly in the workplace. So you had an opinion video. We're, we're really switching gears here a little bit. It's quitting season, which I, I found fascinating. First of all, what prompted you to write that and then get into quitting season, please? Sure, absolutely. Um, and this is an area that I'm really interested in pursuing much more. Um, there's been a lot of coverage right now about the great resignation. Um, of course, in the pandemic, we know this was a change accelerator. It's really, um, our lives have 
evolved seismically in the past two years in a way that um, ideally they wouldn't have in, in another two year period. And um, with that is a lot of people doing complete overhauls of their life, reassessments, um, and just deciding that they don't wanna stand for things that, or they don't wanna um, tolerate you know, environments that aren't really working for them. And so what I was trying to do with that conversation is both expand the conversation outside of quitting your job, which you know, is one thing to do and certainly a way that many Americans define themselves, but to expand it beyond just one's job to, you know, quitting a relationship that's no longer working for you, uh, quitting, quitting a city that, you know, you're tired of living in, um, and really helping people to understand that just sticking with something, even though Americans are really taught, you know, to never give up, um, the idea that quitting can actually be an act of courage, an act of self-reclamation, and that our, um, our embrace of grit, so to speak, um, can actually be bad for us just staying the course for the sake of it and um you know i ended that with a with a with sort of a admonishment to to readers to not be a martyr to grit and that really seemed to resonate with people i mean particularly through the pandemic we've put up with so much um that we'd really rather not deal with and um, this was an opportunity to invite people to reassess, you know, the things in their life that they might want to trim, especially right now, because we're, we're never going to have a better opportunity. And when we do that, we have an opportunity to start something new. And, and you know, what I drew from that, in addition to what you just said, was also a, sort of on a, on a personal and a daily or even hour by hour level, almost a meditative element. You know, live in the moment, which is, of course, one of the one of the great themes of meditation. Was that in your mind? Is that also a message that, whether or not it was in that piece, that you would would give to people or or have people embrace or want them to embrace? Yeah, absolutely. And also just to think about how your past doesn't have to dictate your present. Um, I mean, for me, this is something that I've thought about a lot in my life. Um, I have always. You know, I, th I think women in particular, we're taught that hard work can fix almost anything. And I think we can actually kind of turn ourselves inside out with that hard work, trying to fix something where we actually might just be smarter to let it go and start something new where we don't have to work as hard and we might actually be happier if, we, um, if we're doing something that we wanna do right now, as opposed to something that, you know, we started when maybe we were a different person. And I think, especially with the pandemic, in some ways, probably changing who we are, whether, you know, whether we wanted that or not, but in many ways, quitting something and starting something new is a great way to grow. Lindsay, how do you find the stories that you, that you, that you work on? That's a good question. I think, um, I think I've really been benefited in my work in sports by being one of the few, especially when I started, one of the few women kind of covering whatever I'm whatever, however you would want to define what I'm covering, which I think in some ways is almost, you know, growing up in a way where I really believed certain things, like everything that I thought about my body, everything that I thought about work, everything that I thought about ambition, I really believed that these things were true. And I just, I worked so hard at checking all those boxes that were laid out for me. And then as I got older, especially as I started to follow the headlines, but especially as I started to um, follow my friends, I started to realize that some of those things that I was taught about ambition, bodies, work, they're not true. Um, and I think sports is a great kind of play, play playground or sandbox to look at these untruths in because um, it's actually one of the only arenas where 
it's still gender segregated by design. Men are men, boys and girls are separated, and then um, men and women are separated. And um, by watching all of these experiences, by watching my friends' experiences, and by watching my own experiences, um, I try to think about what's not being covered out there, and to say that whether it's the kind of thing that might make people, you know ashamed to think about or um, uncomfortable to think about. Like that's that's kind of where I want to go. And so it's all an experiment. But um, I've, I've realized as I've gotten older that my perspective is more more um, more unusual than I thought it was to begin with. I have two daughters. They're grown now. Obviously, they were teenage girls at one point. And much of what you're saying in this conversation resonates with me and thinking back on them. They now have daughters, three daughters, what advice would you give to young girls today? That's a really good question. Um, I think I think what I've sort of learned in my career is a follow your instincts, um, because there were so many times when I was doing something where I was a little embarrassed about it. I was like, this doesn't seem what I'm doing doesn't seem like the path to success. It doesn't seem like the right thing to do, but it was something that I was interested in. And it kind of goes back to what I was just saying about how I think the rules sometimes are written for someone else and girls don't necessarily know that. Um, so kind of following your own interests and then also just always making sure that what you're doing is for your own satisfaction, um, you know, to take opportunities and to work hard, but only when you want to. Don't trust that what you're doing is going to be rewarded. It may not be. Um, make sure that you're your own boss and that everything that you're doing ultimately is what you would want to, you know, put on your bio or even, you know, like an obit. Like this is what this is what she did, and that no one told her to do it. Um, that she wanted to, and then she went and did it. But certainly don't wait for an invitation because that's never going to come. You often have to go out and just do it yourself. You could probably summarize that by saying, follow your heart. Absolutely. Well, Lindsay, we've got just a couple of minutes left here. I'm curious, what, uh, what did you learn as an athlete yourself that you now take into this work, uh, the work that you're doing? Well, as I've gotten older, you know, when I was younger, I never won anything. I still, I think I've maybe won one race ever and it was a really, really <laughs> obscure one. And I hated that. I hated losing. Um, but like, I really hated it, but, um, <laughs> uh, but we all, did, we all did what we, yeah. yeah. Um, so three times to make sure you really know, but, um, I think the, I think the benefit there was that it actually made me keep showing up just for myself. Um, and it made me do it for the right reasons, which is that I wanted to be there. No one cared if I was there or not. And, um, finding something that's just your own and where there's no, kind of expectations on you because no one can control you. Um, you know, I've, in some ways, I'm very grateful that I was never good enough to be a professional athlete because then your, your sponsor becomes your boss. Um, and for me, I'm just doing it for myself. And that's, that's, it's one of the few things in my life where I can say that about, you know, like I don't get paid. I am completely in, con in control of how I run. Um, and there's something so beautiful about that because, and when I when I do have success in it, it's my own. Um, and I, I think there are few opportunities to have that in life, particularly as you get older. And um, the idea that this will always be with me, no matter how good or how bad I am about it is something very special. 15 seconds, what are you working on now? Um, that's a great question. I'm working on right now, something about grief and um, closing out 
the end of this year by kind of mourning the the losses that we've suffered, not just you know the very real losses, but almost the ambiguous losses that we've that we've suffered, whether it's um uh you know, the, the jobs we didn't get, the relationships we didn't start, the children we didn't have, um, and thinking about that. It sounds powerful. We'll look forward to it. She's Lindsay Krause. Thank you so much for being with us today. That is all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>